0: Today's topic, we have solving your labor shortage challenges, proven ways to make talent platforms work. And uh, we did our homework on this one and found three areas that we continuously find customers are coming up short on how they look at their talent platforms. We're hoping to save you some time and money and um, we'll be bringing you Again, some of our favorite speakers, um, and I'll introduce them right now. First of all, we've got Sean Fields, who brings insights from about 30 years of IT experience with a number of high-profile clients, and now is at Field Nation. Sean incorporates backgrounds from both design thinking and idle certifications and pulls those into some proven strategies. Uh, We also are privileged to have Chad Maddox, who founded Kinetics, and kinetics fills the gap between the staffing and the contingent workforce and has been helping service organizations expand their capabilities and coverage nationally by vetting and dispatching field techs. And our discussion today is led by our favorite John Ragsale, who is a distinguished researcher at TSIA, with not only research experience, but real-world experience and the curiosity to bubble up all the things that are probably top of mind for audiences like you. So with that, I'd like to turn the mic over to John.
1: Well, thank you, Chris. And uh, thanks very much to you and everybody at Field Nation for having me back again. Uh, I see a number of familiar names in the audience. So thanks to all of you for joining us today. In the previous session, I had the opportunity Uh, to interview Professor Joseph Fuller from Harvard University about a paper that he had recently published in cooperation with Boston Consulting Group uh, about the the move toward on-demand workers, in particular, highly skilled on-demand workers uh, for tech companies. And in that uh, session, we talked about some of the trends that were driving the move toward more on-demand workers and also some of the challenges that companies were having moving to that model, which were largely cultural issues. But today, as Chris said, we're going to be uh, digging into some of the best practices around uh, how to actually leverage this on-demand labor. And we've got these three topics that we're uh, going to be drilling in on. The first is success starts with pay, so getting the right pay strategy for the contract workers and the individual work orders, vet for what you expect, So how much vetting is involved in identifying the right uh, worker for the right project or work order? And finally, we're going to spend some time on clarity matters. How much information should we be providing in a work order when we put it out for bid? How much is too much? Uh, And how easy is all of this information to consume on a mobile device? So let's dig into the first topic, success starts with pay. And some of the areas that we're going to be discussing here You know, the technicians, especially very experienced, skilled technicians, they know their value. So uh, having the right price on the right project when you're putting it out to the marketplace is really important if you want to attract uh, the kind of talent that you expect uh, for the project. On the flip side, you don't want to overpay because you could be overcompensating and setting some bad expectations uh, for the future and actually paying more than you need to for a specific resource. Of a uh, best practice here is leveraging market intelligence and benchmarking to really understand what the prevailing market rates are. So you know the right uh, price point for the right uh, project, depending on the skills required and the geography, because the price can be quite different uh, depending on what part of the world uh, that you may be in. And we're also going to talk about balancing that risk. So, you know, some projects you're going to need some really specific skills, maybe hard skills and soft skills. Other projects may be, you know, kind of low complexity and the skill set doesn't matter. So if you put out a, a lower price, you know, there's a little risk involved sometimes in maybe the, the, the skill level that you're going to get for the role. So enough overview for me. I'd like it open up to our two experts today, Chad and Sean. Uh, let's start on that benchmark topic. Uh, What sort of benchmarking data do you typically see companies use and how do they leverage that to identify the the right pay for each work order?
2: We've seen in this industry uh, various challenges with determining the right price for the work for years. That's nothing new. Uh, I think with the advent of the blended workforces we're looking at today, determining the right price for specific skill sets and specific geography becomes even more challenging. So, uh, you know, prior history shows that people are using anecdotal data to begin to turn price. It may be what a particular client believes a a piece of service is worth. It may be what uh, a salesperson thinks the service is worth. Uh, Typically, there's not a lot of agreement between those two paradigms. But being able to use data to make these decisions, benchmark data, being able to look back over the history of services being performed in a specific geography with a specific technical competency gives everybody a starting point to be able to have those discussions, again, based on empirical you know, versus the anecdotal data. That doesn't mean that even that benchmark data becomes the final price by, by any means, but it does mean that you can have conversations about the amount of risk you're willing to take for a specific job in a specific geography. Uh, you might be willing with you know a commodity level type of work, a, a cleaning type of tasks. You might be able to take more risk as it relates to uh, the specific the specific work order or the specific job. But when you get to a higher end customer with a very complex skill set. You, you would decide probably you're, you're willing to incur less risk and you are able to make those decisions on that pay scale based on what you know is competitive in that market for that particular skill.
1: You know, the, the stakes are really uh, pretty high in, in getting this right. And uh, the, the prep calls we had on this, uh, Field Nation shared a couple of stories one was a managed service provider, and they found that using benchmark or market based pricing data as a starting point uh, for recruiting their on demand labor ultimately delivered a twenty five percent improvement in uh, the down select rates so you know if you if you get your pricing strategy right it can it can absolutely uh, save money and Another anecdote they shared is that one client. Uh, used an artificially low price, uh, so $20 an hour under what the, the benchmarks were recommending. And ultimately, they sent the work out to 126 local providers and only one expressed interest in the work. So, you know, as a reminder, techs know their value and they know what they're typically getting paid, and they're not going to accept uh, lowball offers. So, you know, you, you've got to be uh, competitive. So with gig labor, as with outsourcing and with uh, so many things in life, um, you get what you pay for. And I have found that, unfortunately, uh, this is almost a mistake that companies have to make and learn for themselves uh, until they understand the value of really pay for performance. Uh, pay for, for quality. So uh, are you saying that companies understand this or do they often start by trying to go for the low cost option and it kind of bites them and then they come back and realize they, they've got to be more competitive? Sean, do you see people make that mistake a lot?
2: John, unfortunately, we do. Uh, even with the presence of data uh, that shows them that a particular uh, their desired hourly rate, as an example, might not be competitive in a marketplace for a specific skill set. We see them trying anyway, as, as you saw that last sort of uh, anecdote that you were talking about, where um, you were looking at uh, an artificially low price where that client had the benchmark price, decided to go out for that specific bid at a, at a rate significantly below that. And, and, you know, we saw what the results were, you know, only 1% of 126 decided to bid on that work. So we do unfortunately see that clients uh, continue to use uh, an artificially low rate versus a market competitive rate. But what we're seeing is an improvement in that as they have access to the benchmark data and they have a couple of projects that they, they are challenged with these challenges we're talking about. We're seeing them begin to, to rely a little bit more on the market-based data and save themselves some trouble uh, in the long run.
1: So, Chad, is that something that you see as well? It's kind of a mistake you have to learn for your yourself before you understand the, the importance of getting that price right.
3: I think equipping your coordinators and teams that are negotiating or managing with the tax to understand what that market rate is, is is really. On the low end, it's self-adjust. The tech just won't accept the work. But on the high end, you can also be in situations, and we'll see people a lot of times take projects and normalize a national rate. And and so there's some inefficiencies on the high end that you may leave on the the table there as well. And we're also looking at things that can combine that skill set and the level of effort. So that transaction might be a fixed cost. You're going to go do this particular event for X dollars, and that resource is making a decision of what they know and how well they can complete a particular task. So there may be different levers of how we would negotiate and go through that, but I, I find the market is a lot more responsive on the low end than it is on the high end. So when tickets are being created, leveraging that market data is, is important. You know, So you being in the West Coast, me being in the Midwest, we'd have different criteria just purely because of cost of living, et cetera. So if you normalize that, you, you really aren't fine tuning that. Maybe we should be putting a little bit more towards you, a little bit less towards me, still achieving what the market would support and fine tuning your, your margin performance on the project.
1: So before we leave this topic, we've talked uh, a lot here about the importance of benchmarking. And, you know, this is something uh, I know a lot from TSIA. This is one of the values of of being a TSIA member is benchmarking. And a lot of companies just don't have the data. You know, they may have been tracking this in spreadsheets for years. They may be opening in new geographies where they just don't have any experience. So, Sean, is this something that Field Nation helps your customers with? Can you provide them with benchmarks to consider when they're maybe introducing into a new region or new technical skills they haven't needed to leverage previously?
2: It is, John. We actually have a tool we call Market Smart Insights. And what that is, is the data for every work order that Nation has performed for every piece of work in every geography over a certain period of time. So what that provides to our clients is the ability to go out and perform queries based on particular skill sets, particular geographies, particular timeframes, a lot of other criteria that they can add in there to, to understand what that pricing should be. Uh, it also offers the advantage, you know, by default, this tool set up to look at the data over the last 12 months. But as we all know, we're going through some unprecedented times here in terms of, of labor shortages, which is affecting unfortunately the price of labor in spe- for specific skill sets in specific markets and, and quite honestly overall so this tool also allows the ability to look at the most recent data you can go back and look at the last month or last three months so that you can look at the trend of labor data for a particular skill set or in a particular geography and make even better decisions based on recency focus uh, as opposed to you know the last year of data so yes it is a uh, a, a, a tool that we provide uh, and a service that we provide. And we found out that our clients are, are, are really enjoying uh, that, that advantage of being able to make data-based decisions.
3: I think that also gives a lot of enablement for people that are building pro formas and trying to legitimize uh, price battles that exist in these types of projects. So I've had some direct experience with Field Nation where we took a particular type of incline with their specific locations, all the different skill sets. And if you can work in a more transparent environment, you can really start to see what is the cost basis across these regions to put these things together. So I, I really feel like that brings in that the transparency and scale uh, so that when we're bidding on things, we're trying to determine how we're going to roll a particular project out. It, it gives you down to the site location on that skill set, things that were completed by a variety of granular criteria that can get pretty specific. And even as you're designing this, you can start to make real-time considerations of what do I want to throttle back on? maybe I'll ratchet back on skill set, maybe I'll deal with people that work and, and you know don't show up as frequently as the higher performing resources. So the, the tool provides a framework that I think really helps build that foundational element where a lot of times we see, I'm not going to use the word guessing, but we're pretty close at what we think labor cost in areas and that's the default. So this really starts to legitimize your discussions when you're up against uh, a point where, you know, all of a sudden percentages start to matter. Uh, it's an it's a critical framework, I think, mm-hmm. in, in uh, building that uh, talking point.
1: Well, uh, I want to move to the second topic, which is vet for what you expect. And I think. Uh, Many companies think when they start to go to an on-demand workforce, it sort of absolves them of any responsibility uh, for really vetting uh, the techs that they're going to be hiring. And, you know, that may be safe. I got my start in the retail sector. You'd bring in 100 contractors to do manual counts in a retail store. Uh, You probably aren't that concerned about individual skills, but let's say you've got a, a hard down Uh, hardware problem at a strategic customer who's up for renewal, you want to make sure that you're sending somebody out there with the technical skills, the soft skills. Uh, So, you know, in those situations, you're probably going to have to get a little more involved and looking at uh, the folks that you want to accept uh, for a project. So, you know, part of this is looking at projects, breaking it into addressable pieces and understanding the skills required uh, for each Piece of that. And uh, for these more strategic, more visible, more customer facing projects, you may need to take the same care as you do with recruiting your internal employees. So we know that these uh, digital uh, platforms, such as Field Nation, are introducing some intelligence, some automation to make finding text more effective and more efficient. And you also have some data there, like ratings and uh, reviews from previous projects that you can kind of factor into that. Um, So I, I think that people often forget about the soft skills Side, and if they're going to be front and center uh, in the face of the customer, that um, you know, has a major implication on the long term relationship you have with these customers. And very often they've been dealing with the same field tech for years. And as you start shifting uh, to a new labor force, uh, there's some change management that's involved uh, on the customer side too. So um, I want to uh, start, Chad, with you. Uh, when how, how engaged do you see companies being in really vetting uh, these field techs? Is this something else that they have to learn? Are they just providing a really distinct profile for recruiting? Um, which profiles should they get involved in really doing interviews?
3: Yeah, I I think these soft skills that you're referring to are the ones in which interviews really, uh, I think can most amplify. We are seeing criteria now with like vaccination status, uh, background checks that go beyond just what might be default in the system, uh, site conditions like that start to really make the, the the development of a talent pool. So we start looking at certain people that have certain attributes that have repeatability for us that will start to make preferential. So being able to identify those soft skills, a lot of times we'll go through a, an ongoing discussion. So on certain projects, we're, we're not only... Um, engaging the field nation to identify the text, but we're going through interviews, we're going through processes, we're making sure they understand the scale and scope of what we're going through. And then you can also enforce some human elements to this, such as call-aheads to make sure that people are prepared when they go into site, because a lot of times they're getting this information packaged and they may be involved in multiple events in a day. So we want assurance that when you arrive on site, That you are aware who the incline is, how you're going to greet them, what the mission is, and that we're here to support you if if help is needed. And then as you start to document and see attributes of people doing this work over and over again, you can move their profiles and other pools that then you can now deploy with a lot more confidence and certainty. Because we have direct experience, not the community experience, but direct experience to what that tech is able to, to provide. But uh, John, to your, like, what's the most important thing? I mean, it, it, it soft skills are becoming incredibly critical to get on site, to complete the work that's out there, and, and to make sure that that mission is accomplished. And so people showing up and saying, look, I didn't really read my work order. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing here. These are um, very quick escalations that emerge, even though that person may be completely prepared. It may be upon us to make sure that we're talking to them to have that assurance for that critical event that they're ready.
1: Yeah, you mentioned escalations. I know one of the stats that Field Nation shared is that on average, about 1.8 work orders are escalated, which by the way, is very low. Uh, So you're you're doing a good job there. But one customer that was more involved in the vetting process saw a 0.3% uh, escalation rate for work orders. So clearly, if you're putting in a little more effort, you're ultimately going to get a, a much higher uh, quality result. So Sean, over to you. Um, what sort of guidance do you give uh, new customers on how involved and which projects should they get involved in the vetting process?
2: So John, our advice is to choose your platform talent with the same care that you choose your employee talent. There's not a single company out there that would choose a resource and put them in front of their client the very next day uh, with with just looking at them through a system, if you would. So, you know that the ability to use that much the same process for looking at your your platform talent that you do your your W two talent, uh, realizing, of course that. A lot of those processes will collapse into the technology. You'll be able to do them automatically, but there's going to be some, as as you and Chad have pointed out, like soft skills, that you'll want to take the time uh, and the care to be able to uh, go through whatever the appropriate screening method would be, whether it's interviews, video interviews, however you decide to do that. Um, One of our clients uh, has basically recreated their W2 hiring process for uh, the work on the, on the platform. And they go through a pretty extensive uh, video interviewing process. They ask the technicians to look at a, uh, a prepared video that talks about the company and what their expectations are. And by the way, it is that company who has that 0.3% escalation um, on, on these work order events. So that upfront care and feeding and and care and choosing these resources uh, certainly has the back-end impact that you would expect.
1: So what I'm hearing is our advice uh, around this topic is let the work determine the workforce. I I don't think that there is a one-size-fits-all price that's going to work for all projects, and you're going to have to look at uh, individual projects and you know, back to the previous question, determine the risk involved. And if those uh, particular uh, technical skills or soft skills uh, are, are critical, you probably need to be a little more involved in that. Um, let, let me just uh, drill a, a minute more into those soft skills, Sean. We talked about interviews, even doing like video interviews, which is great to determine Uh, Demeanor, professional demeanor. Uh, But what about the reviews? Don't you track previous reviews from field tech so you can see who got great feedback from customers before?
2: We absolutely do. Uh, We actually allow each of our clients, as they're going through uh, the the reviews on these technicians, to determine the criteria that they think is important for a particular project so they can actually determine what. Uh, what are all the performance criteria that's available in the platform, they want to determine showing up on time, finishing uh, and completing deliverables on time, closing out the paperwork, all of that kind of uh, stuff. So they can assess ratings based on those performance criteria that are then available in the platform for them to continue to use to vet or for other clients to look at in order to be able to vet. Chad mentioned earlier the concept of a talent pool, and a talent pool is really exactly that. Through repeated use and screening of these technical resources, you can build a cadre of resources that you can use over and over and over again. That allows you to do uh, more automated things like if you're looking at um, a talent pool that you know and trust that you've used, you can automatically route your work orders to those to those resources without having to do that screening, and and that, as you can imagine, that saves a, an immense amount of time on behalf of the dispatchers to be able to do that. Then rather than have to go through that that vetting and screening process.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And those techs are familiar with how you work and the kind of information they're going to get, so they can hit the ground running uh, as well. Chad, mm-hmm. could I just ask, how do you see companies? encouraging customers to submit those reviews or those satisfaction scores? Because the response rate on post-visit surveys is not that high. So how do we encourage customers to give feedback on a text so you've got that for future appointment consideration?
3: I think as as projects start to scale and people – um, build more confidence in driving like automation around a, a platform like Field Nation, the, the community benefit of, of people completing those metrics, some of these things are just standard, so it'd be part of our process as a coordinator, as I'm closing out a ticket, the techs have an opportunity to give that feedback on how we're performing putting those things together. Uh, a lot of times we're doing different types of uh, surveys against the incline, the site that we may bend to see how those people put those things together, and that helps us uh, even look at any types of warranty or workmanship issues that we're able to address in a more proactive way so we're seeing a lot more of that adoption now and people more comfortable sharing this information uh, i think you have to be comfortable getting bad in, you know feedback as well because it helps you know identify who who are the you know the right and, and uh, um, appropriate text to put on site uh, but, but the metrics seem to be a lot more systemized. We're seeing trends now in everything that we do. Um, so we want to know how the site views this, how the coordinator views this, how the tech views this, and, and all those elements together. And so there is a reconciliation uh, opportunity and there is governance that Field Nation brings into place that maybe I have a different view of what had happened and what the tech thought and that we can remediate some of those things. So I think people feel comfortable that there's a mechanism that this can scale and, and so what we're experiencing, especially as you're getting to more repeatable, larger projects, that the benefit of that data is is worth being a participant of it. But but a lot of things that we see just become the normal part of our closeout of a ticket. We want that feedback, and that's, that's how we'll close out a ticket on behalf of our clients.
1: So one final question on this topic. I work primarily with B2B tech companies, and they all have Uh, you know, certification programs, online learning programs about their technology, but usually there's a fee associated with that. Do you see companies opening up these training or certification programs for potential field techs to go through at a free or a discounted rate? Because then they know that they are vetted on their technology and they're really set up for success.
3: I think one of the uh, benefits, one of the few benefits of COVID has been the adoption of video content, be able to work remotely. So we're seeing a lot of these organizations and the OEM certifications, or what is the criteria in the vetting? I want this tech to go on site and deploy my kiosk, my digital signage, my media board, whatever whatever the infrastructure may be, uh, can now be put into pretty consumable elements that can have a, a, a part of video, plus some type of proactive Q&A or question to authenticate that I, in fact, had you know built some of that knowledge. So the things that were in the past are criteria. For a lot of the more niched uh, IoT devices, we're seeing that the pervasiveness. I think, you know, Sean, I've talked in the past. It's like amazing how much um, technology is embedded in all the devices that are out there. So the, the content is being pushed out in ways that may not be as formal as like a Cisco certification, like you're getting to a CCNA and the testing methodologies, but certainly uh, – we're seeing OEMs that are making the content available that if the tech goes through this level of information, we feel comfortable. They know how to go on site. They can work through the different platforms. They can, they can then also deal with our escalations, getting to the right level two, level three support um, uh, as needed. But we're seeing that, that video content being a lot more consumable was even you know, one or two years ago.
1: Sean, any final thoughts on VET for success before we move on?
2: Uh, I would echo what Chad said uh, that as it relates to certifications, we're not seeing full-scale certification uh, processes by clients uh, asking for testing and those type of things, but we are seeing okay. training related to specific tasks and jobs. So, you know, uh, basically apprenticeship programs where they're going out with an experienced tech of, of that particular um, manufacturer learning what's going on and then becoming, uh, you know, from that from their perspective, qualified to do that particular work. So we're seeing more of that, as opposed to the full-blown scale full blown certification programs that you sort of see in the industry.
1: Well, I wanna to move to our third topic now uh, around clarity matters. And to me, this is just a fascinating topic. So on, on one hand, you've gotta set the field tech up for success, which means giving them a work order with a clearly defined scope of work, uh, what you expect them to do when they get there. Uh, And you also have the danger though, and we were discussing this yesterday, of giving them too much information. And then it becomes analysis paralysis if you give them an ocean of information to consume before they they go on site. So I believe that the statement of work needs to have the, the basic information they need to be successful, a clear and concise statement Uh, of the work, uh, perhaps, you know, even three to four bullets. So they understand the required skills, required tools, uh, the appropriate work attire, uh, if necessary. Uh, And you've got to keep in mind that all this information you're sending them is on a mobile device. They're probably looking at it on a smartphone. Uh, So if it's, you know, a lot of complex diagrams, they may not even be able to uh, consume the information. And the final thing I want to talk about on this topic is what if they run into problems on site? Do you give them a backdoor escalation so they can contact someone or are they going to call your help center and sit on hold for an hour uh, to reach uh, a live person, which is is not a great experience for them or their customer who's sitting there watching them <laughs> suffer through this uh, on site? So, um, Chad, let me start with you on this. What do you think table stakes has to be included in uh, this work order for the tech to be effective
3: without getting into that analysis paralysis? Yeah, I think taking a design view from the perspective of the tech arriving on site, giving them the information that's needed, almost like a an aviation analogy with the uh, flight deck information. They only show you what's critical at the time that you need it. And layering this information is out there. I think yesterday we talked a little bit about the opportunities for integration so that knowledge base and information can be uh, can be delivered to the tech as needed. So on some of these engagements, we're seeing uh, an expansion in the teams that are supporting the, the techs on site. Um, that, that includes far more like uh, level two, level three depth of, of information to give them the support quickly. When a tech is on site and being released, if they are on hold for uh, um, you know, 30, 40 minutes, that's out of scope. And that brings up whole discussion about who's gonna pay for that. So as you're building these, uh, these events, and driving towards that simplicity again, I think the pre-calls, the vetting of the right text, finding people that can you know repeat these things over and over again. The technology is there. We just have a lot of different languages, and it's almost like the Tower of Babel. So you think about a, a typical field nation tech; they may be working for five or six different. You know, companies. So it's incumbent on you to think about designing a work order and a support process that uh, really makes it easy for them and they feel like they've got their back. And I think, John, that goes to your prior uh, discussion about feedback. That's what the techs are going to be looking to as well. They they don't want to go on site, not being, you know, looking like they don't know what they're doing, being on hold for an hour and putting these things together. So I think when you're building out your service management capacity and you're using the gig economy to leverage that, these are things that maybe traditional third party providers or the W2 workforce has that you're going to have to augment and virtualize into the solution. And and you have the tools to do that. But I think a lot of times, especially on on rapidly moving projects, those, those are the missing elements. So,
1: Sean, what are your thoughts on this? What do you see as a requirement to be included in that work order? Uh, Is there some uh, optional information you can provide? How much is too much?
2: So, interestingly enough, John, when we think about this, I want to relate to something we, we talked about a little bit earlier, and that is Competitive nature of looking for labor in the marketplace today. So, these technicians have a choice. So, uh, when they're looking at which work they want to do and who they want to do it for, uh, you need to keep in mind you want to be the buyer of choice. Mm -hmm. You want to be the company that they want to work for. So, what they're going to be looking for is what we've been talking about. They want to make sure that. That your work instructions are clear and concise and e- easily consumable. They want to make sure that if they are on site and they have an issue, that your support process is uh, is easy to use. To your point, you don't want them sitting on a you know on hold for thirty to forty five minutes. You want them to be able to get to someone and get to someone quickly and be able to resolve the problem in that in that first trip. In short, you want to have a process that lets them be successful and lets them know that you have their backs. So um, creating those work instructions, uh, anything that you have to have done, you want to make sure is a part of what in our workers we call a task. You want to make sure that it's called out uh, and, and that you will be able to see through the platform as the technician is performing those tasks, that they are doing them and then the order that they're doing them. So that way there's, there's no assumptions here. You you know exactly what you expect of them and you can watch them as they're performing it, make sure that that, that gets done. You also have the ability to be able to offer incentives. If there are things that you want to do, when you're looking at your competitive market rate, what you may choose to do is offer at or near that competitive market rate and then put, very important tasks in as performance bonuses, so completing your work order on time, being able to turn in uh, the photographs of the work that you've done, those type things, have that as a performance bonus, have your you know showing up on time uh, as a performance bonus, whatever you choose to do to incent the behavior you expect that's really up to you as you compose uh, as you compose these work orders
1: Well, I really like uh, what you just said because. If if you don't realize this in the audience, these field techs all know each other and they're all talking to each other and you want your company to have the reputation of setting them up for success they love working for you they get these detailed work orders they can go on site and be successful and that's the reputation you want and you know if and if the opposite is true they're all going to tell you watch out for this company because you know i felt like they set me up for failure and that's absolutely you know not a reputation that that you want. So, uh, you know, I do a lot of work with companies on knowledge management and creating knowledge libraries and, you know, uh, access to community discussions about solving certain problems. Is it a good idea to include links to all of this stuff proactively when you send someone out links to knowledge articles, product documentation? Or is, is that just too much? Is it better for them to search for what they need access to? Or do you recommend that they you know, proactively give them potential information they may need to
3: be successful? I think if you broke things up in two general work types, like something like is, uh, dispatch or break-fix, that the efficiency of that work order needs to be pretty um, to the point. Uh, But in projects, especially things that may go on for multiple days, may have multiple partners that are engaged in that particular event, uh, having those links and additional content, I think, helps build some of the uh, capability. This is an attribute that we're tracking for some texts. We have some texts that uh, just don't read anything, still perform well, but we just know how to communicate to them. And we have others that feel far more comfort in having that data and under have knowledge and understanding what's out there. So it depends on what we're doing. If we're going on site and we're replacing a you know um, a switch or a router or a POS device, though the, the information there may be a lot more sheltered. But if I'm going on site and I'm doing a rollout and I'm doing something with SD-WAN and maybe there's a test out procedure to release the tech uh, that has a lot more detail. And then w- whether we have video links or additional URLs Else so they understand the depth of what's happening. As the skill set goes up, generally speaking, uh, we see that they want to have additional information to support that. In a lot of ways, I think it's their litmus test to, to understand how mature or ready we are for that uh, particular rollout as well.
1: Sean, what are your thoughts on this question about links to knowledge articles and documentation?
2: I think we have to realize that these technicians are, they're independent business people and time is money to them. So um, I I like Chad's analogy earlier, give them the amount of information they need at the time that they need it. Um, I think that in the more complex projects, uh, you, you may want to give them more documentation. But I think you also want to make sure you set up your work order to be able to do that. Allow them the time to be able to do that as a part of the work order. Don't expect them. To read a comprehensive set of work instructions, along with several knowledge-based references, that they have to do as a condition before they get on work before they get on site, because that's non-compensated time to them, and that's the way they're going to view it. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, I I just want to make a, a cautionary note. When we were discussing in the the previous uh, executive exchange uh, about the trends driving this, one of the trends is that the average age. Of field techs in North America is over 50, and a lot of folks are nearing retirement. And these experts have been on the job for decades, and typically they're not documenting their knowledge. So, you know, if you're considering your first foray uh, into an on demand labor force, I would spend some time looking at what knowledge management infrastructure you have in place because if you've got nothing uh, to help them troubleshoot issues or uh, procedures to replace parts or something you probably need to get some of that in place Uh, because again it was it's really critical uh, for setting them up for success so that that's on you guys before you go to an on-demand workforce to make sure that you've got the knowledge infrastructure uh to support them Uh, so we talked about the importance of having an escalation point and that we don't want to see your contractors having to call and, and sit on hold for a long time. What are the best practices there? Should they have a direct phone number to a product expert? Do you see maybe having some senior field techs acting as like a level three that they have direct access to? Uh, Sean, what do you think the best practices is there to give them an easy escalation route?
2: I think they can vary uh, typically by the complexity of, of, the, of the job. Plus you want to make sure that uh, you have a support infrastructure that's set up for the results that the outcomes you're looking for in the field. So if you're on site and you know that this job has to get done within a specific time period, you're going to have to have resources set up for this technician to be able to talk to uh, while they're on site, very little hesitation to get this, to be able to get this done on time that can consist of those level two and level three techs who have the expertise that these technicians are going to need it, that by the way as you pointed out earlier that's separate and apart from your normal service desk infrastructure yeah. where you're going to come in and you're going to have a you know a specific call and wrap time they're focused on and they're just going to be able to log and route it and escalate it to the next resource these technicians aren't gonna have time for that. And quite frankly, that's not the result you want your client to see uh, in the field.
1: Chad, any examples of best practices or worst practices you've seen on off- offering escalations?
3: Worst practice, I have a lot of those. Um, I <laughs> say, yeah, I think one of the trends here, you're right uh, the aging workforce and you're cautioning your tail beforehand, you know, that there is a lot of knowledge that has to be captured. And, um, but what is good about the gig economy in general uh, is the scale of, uh, of, of what flexibility we now have in a labor pool. So I think these are, now you have a community of younger workers that are willing to work in a gig economy in, in ways that are so different. So for us, you know, we, we find real challenges that we do a deployment and don't have the support infrastructure. So I'm speaking from the you know the viewpoint of maybe supporting other service providers who might be supporting that that in customer the skill set of this remote desk that can talk to a tech, keep them on site, give them the support, deepen their own bench knowledge of what's happening out there. We're seeing a lot of organizations build expert centers, so they have the equipment. So if they're installing smart lockers or SD-WAN devices. There's labs are around these uh, support centers, so they'll be able to work and talk with the people, be their eyes and ears for them. We're seeing some now adoption of using different types of um Google Glass-like uh, interfaces, like uh, Zebra has uh, an interesting application with that where you can kind of see what the tech is looking at. So I think that whole investment around that uh, that support center is changing. So as the skill sets are getting more and more commoditized, the labor costs, I mean, you, find, you, you won't have that expert. So what that maybe 50-year-old plus subject matter expert, uh, what you may lose, you will augment in your, your remote services. And I think that's a general trend that's been happening as IT services as, as a whole. We're not mm-hmm. deploying CCNAs on site. Uh, you know, We might swap out devices, but we certainly have a knock that's able to escalate and put those things in play. Mm-hmm. So we've seen projects that have literally halted because the budget, the tech, the scope, everything else was not giving them enough support to get the tech released. Because in the end, that is the ultimate metric. Did the tech show up? Were they released and was everything in working order? And if that if that you can't get to that endpoint, nothing else really really matters. But I think what you amplified there is there's a skill set there that you know you're going to have to be able to provide a, a more of a support infrastructure. But I think what you get in exchange is a far broader, more available, more scalable workforce. But it's going to be incumbent on you to make sure you're supporting them, and you can't expect that someone is a, a expert in T Bird, for example. that that those guys are few and far between, but there are still needs for those devices and how you solve that is gonna take the combination of the field and remote to to augment that that outcome.
1: Well, I wanna talk uh, just a moment about mobile tools. Uh, I've spent a a lot of time helping companies develop uh, mobile uh, apps for field techs, and uh, I think that a lot of tech firms have developed very sophisticated capabilities for their employees, often with a uh, specific device that they give them that's preloaded with a lot of information. And uh, I remember one company in particular developed a a pretty impressive iPad app, and they gave them all those big uh, iPads with special uh, insulator so they could drop it and kick it in the, the field and, and not damage it. But when we're dispatching it off to a contractor, they are probably dealing with the three by five screen on a smartphone. Um, so, what guidance can you give companies to develop or share information that's really consumable on a mobile device?
2: So, we're, Chad and I have talked about, we're in the age of API and microservices. So the the ability to do integrations between client applications and platform applications is just a matter of of an API. So you're you're exactly right, John, they're not gonna have sophisticated OEM devices, they're gonna have their own personal devices, but the ability to interface from a client system to to the platform so that that information is shared and the the client can use a single system of record, that's, that's what we're recommending to clients is to look at those integrations uh, be able to pass that information back and forth and, and, and look at the productivity from not having to do swivel seats from one system to another just because you're using platform labor.
1: So let me drill in on that um, quickly, and then we'll, we'll go to some Q&A from the audience. Um, you know, the importance of having that one view, that one system of record, you know, your employees are able to look at the repair history uh, of a of a customer or a particular device, your contractors probably don't have access to that and you know we do annual surveys about adoption and plan spending for technology and I can tell you that uh, tech companies, uh, field service dispatch and scheduling applications have some of the lowest satisfaction scores of more than 50 technologies that we survey about. You know, People often hate <laughs> those systems. Um, you know, if you guys have a really great, robust technology, what about, can they leverage your system to dispatch both their employees and their contract workers? And that way they can move to a more robust, best of breed platform and not have to bring in and, and uh, re-implement and own Uh, another platform on their own. Is that something you
2: offer? We actually do. We have a system called Field Nation One, which allows customers to put a separate set of employees inside that platform and to be able to manage them as a single entity. So the ability to use the platform, if, if the client is happy with the features and functions, the benefits of the platform, to use that for a separate workforce, that is something that we offer.
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely something to, to look at. Uh, you know, there's so much more interest now in not only cloud technology, but managed services technology that you've got less and less ownership. So that, that sounds like a, a great approach uh, to me. So, you know, just to recap uh, what I think the, the best advice I heard on this topic is that you want to be the buyer of choice and you're creating an environment that allows your providers to be successful, you want that reputation that you're the company to work for, you're setting your contractors up for success, and then they're going to be much more likely uh, to want to bid for your projects. Uh, So I see we've got quite a few questions from the audience, so I want to get a few of those in. Uh, If you haven't asked a question, you, you folks in the audience, go ahead and submit it. If we don't have time to get to all of those today, uh, we can definitely follow up uh, with you afterwards. So uh, the first question is, if you're starting using an on-demand workforce uh, for the first time, what are the few most important things to really get right uh, across these various topics? Where do you start? I'll take that one, Sean, if you don't mind.
3: Go ahead. I think when you start looking at using the, the platform for the first time, that you really need to put emphasis around what was being provided prior and, and fully understanding all the different elements that drive you know the things we talked about, the right scope, for the work orders, the right budget for the tech, the right methodology to support that team and put those things in place. I think a lot of times people struggle with platforms. They assume that just they can route a ticket and everything is taken care of. There's an obligation on how things are drafted, the expectations that are set. And I think long-term thinking about integrating into your field service management platform holistically, um, if that's not part of the strategy, we find that sometimes the the adoption of these platforms are are short lived because there there's a benefit that you now you're transparent you're buying direct from that tech but there's other services other things you need to wrap around that to make sure all those obligations are taken care of so i think eyes wide open with what those expectations are and then in the end what you're going to have is a scalable diverse workforce that you're going to be able to pull from and you'll stop droughting events to other providers and you'll start to build those unique, like we talked about earlier. What is the talent pool? Who are those super techs? Who are the people that that you see? We see a lot of stories, including our legacy business, that you like the particular tech, but if you start to have a, you know, your relationship with your service provider goes in a, you know, a, you transition to another provider, those techs and that knowledge leave. So the 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 long-term benefit is to make sure you have enough of a wrap around the service models that are coordinating and tracking and putting all those things together, all the things we've been talking about, we just see a lot of that as being missed. And and there's an expectation, just route it and it's taken care of. There's a burden to make sure you're really thinking about how you design your services. And you now control every one of those steps, but you need to make sure you're thinking about and building that. Sean, what are your
1: thoughts? We've given so much advice today, but if you're new to this, what are the most important things to do first?
2: So, the interesting part that, that Chad was, uh, was mentioning is that there is, regardless of whether you're going to use your W 2 workforce, a set of subcontractors or the platform, there, there is work that has to be done to be able to do that. Um, that work, even though you may be using the platform to, to Procure the technicians that you use. Those other pieces of work, the dispatch work, the project coordination, the project management—all those things still have to take place. So it's a matter of as you're evaluating the platform, deciding not uh, who's going to do that work, but how that work is going to be able to be done, and then ultimately who's going to be responsible for it. So it's don't come into a platform uh, assuming that it's just a matter of choosing the technicians. Have realistic expectations about how that same amount of work is gonna get done and who it's gonna get done by. Uh, and that way you won't assume that that work will be done by somebody else and, and ultimately be just disappointed in, in how the platform performs for you.
1: Well, and I, and I think it, it bears mentioning, You know, I, I had a chapter in my book about why most technology uh, implementations fail And it's very often because people are trying to hard code broken processes or they've got no process at all and they're expecting the technology to provide uh, the process for them. So, you know, I think the Field Nation platform offers you a best of breed capability uh, for sourcing and managing on-demand field service resources and potentially for your employees as well, but you've still got to get your processes right. You've got to have your data sources right because the best platform in the world can't help you if you're using broken processes. So, sorry, that, that's one of those pieces of advice I can never give uh, often enough. Um, let me go to the next question. Uh, we talked about vetting. Is there a short list of essential insightful questions that can help filter some of the better text? And I'm going to add both from the technical perspective and the soft skills perspective. Chad or Sean thoughts on that?
2: Well from I'll cover the soft skills perspective and again it's focus on the outcomes that you're looking for. what do you this technician is going to represent your brand in this particular client site. So, what is it that you want them to do? Is it a professional appearance? Do you want them to be able to communicate eloquently with the client staff? Um, you know, what kind of customer service skills are you looking for? And then, based on those outcomes, determine a set of questions that will will get to those particular pieces. Uh, soft skills are, as we talked about a little bit earlier today, soft is going to be tough to determine. Uh, over the phone sometimes you want to see that resource react to the questions you're asking and ask them some impromptu questions and, and see how you know see what their response is so you know the, cons- the consideration of the, the outcomes you're looking for what questions you need to ask to get to those outcomes and then the consideration of how you want to perform the interviews whether it needs to be on 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 site via video conference we're all used to you know a year and a half of zoom here so every- Every technician is used to being on these calls. Uh, help you determine, you know, what what's the right soft skills you need to get the outcomes that you expect.
1: Well, we have come to the end of our time together today. Uh, so I would like to thank both uh, Chad and Sean for. Uh, joining me in this conversation. Thanks to everybody at Field Nation uh, for making this possible. And a special thank you to all of our audience attendees. I know there were quite a few questions you submitted that we didn't get to, so we will follow up uh, with you afterwards. So on behalf of Field Nation and uh, Kinetics and TSIA, thank you all very much for attending and hope to see you at our next uh, executive exchange. Have a great day, everybody.